What do you remember about the day Kim disappeared? When Dad eventually found her bar, the key was in the ignition. My sister's shoes were still on the floor. It had been the scariest thing for him. Boys playing in the woods saw a woman's body naked laying on her back. It did appear this was sexually motivated. The grief, just so overwhelming, absolutely excruciating. The last words I ever spoke to her was, be safe. People were frightened because the first thought was, could this be somebody that we know? Three women were able to give us a very distinct description of someone acting suspiciously. You've painted a portrait of a monster, someone who was lying in wait, looking for his next victim. He was basically on the prowl. He was, in every sense of a word, a sexual predator. And a violent one at that. Hi, I'm Paula Zahn. Tonight, we're on the case in New Milford, New Jersey, just about 25 miles from Manhattan. Despite being so close to New York City, in the mid-1970s, New Milford was still the type of small town where residents left their doors unlocked and few worried about their safety at the local mall. But all of that changed when one of their own, 20-year-old Kim Montalero, went missing. And the disturbing mystery behind Kim's disappearance continues to haunt her family and law enforcement more than 40 years later. August 31st, 1976. It was a warm afternoon in New Milford, and 20-year-old Kim Montalero was enjoying the last days of her summer break from college at home with her family. Around two o'clock, Kim offered to give her brother Paul, who was just 16 at the time, a ride to his high school football practice. Kim and I set off for the afternoon practice with both of the car windows rolled down. She dropped me off at my high school. Decades later, Paul remembers that final conversation with Kim like it was yesterday. As I got out of the car, I thanked my sister and I locked the passenger door. The last words I ever spoke to her was, be safe. Kim planned to pick up Paul later that afternoon. How long after that were you expecting her to come back? Oh, I believe practice was for two and a half to three hours. And after practice was over, but I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And everybody was gone. There was nobody left, at which point I called my parents. When he got home, Paul was angry with his sister. But by dinner time, he and his parents were concerned that Kim hadn't returned. Kim was far too responsible for her not to be there, not to call. My parents were very specific. If something happens, if you can't get there, 
call us. Don't make us worry about you. But as the hours continue to go by, Paul and his parents were doing just that. Could you see your parents' anxiety grow? Absolutely. And my mother decided to take the car to kind of just drive around the neighborhood and see if she could locate Kim. My mother drove around for a while and came back with no success. Kim had mentioned she might stop at the mall and shop while her brother was at practice. My father drove to Paramus Park Mall, and by that time, the mall was closed, so the parking lot was mostly empty. When Kim's father spotted the car his daughter had been driving, his heart began to race. What did he see? He noticed the windows were down, the key was on the ignition. My sister's shoes were still on the floor in the car. Kim's father was filled with dread as he made his way to the back of the car. At that point, my father was so emotionally distraught, he said, I had to open the trunk. And it had been the scariest thing for him. Although he was relieved that Kim's body was not in the trunk, there was little doubt in his mind that she had been the victim of foul play. The only thing in the trunk were whatever items that Kim had purchased that day. Kim's father was terrified as he raced home to tell police about his disturbing discovery and report his daughter missing. We were all still very much hoping that Kim was alive someplace, but we all knew that something terrible had happened. When officers arrived, they agreed that the evidence surrounding Kim's disappearance appeared to be troubling. Can you imagine the shock of her father discovering her car with the key still inside? I can't. I, I can't imagine uh, no parent should have to relive that, have to go through that. It's your worst nightmare. Do you think he knew she was gone? He told me he did. He knew it was not going to be a good outcome. Although it had only been a few hours since Kim had gone missing, police immediately opened a criminal investigation. They started by processing her car for evidence. The car was impounded and it was brought in for uh, complete forensic examination. While authorities desperately searched the car for clues, Kim's family suffered through the worst night of their lives. They feared that their beautiful young daughter had been kidnapped, or perhaps even worse. What do you remember about the blur of hours once it became clear to your whole family that something had gone terribly wrong? Every minute seemed like an hour. And even though I was only 16 years old at the time, and certainly my parents would never let me drink an alcoholic beverage, my father finally came over to me and said, you want a drink? It's like, yes, something, anything. It was the longest night of our lives. 
but any comfort the Montaleros found during those dark hours would be gone when the sun rose the next morning. A discovery made just 15 miles away from their home was about to turn their worst fears into reality. Twenty-year-old Kim Montalero had gone missing while running errands on a summer afternoon. Later that evening, Kim's father discovered her car in an empty mall parking lot. As police processed the evidence found at that location, hoping for a clue as to what happened to Kim, her family was bracing themselves for the worst. Less than 24 hours after Kim Montalero vanished, police in the township of Washington, New Jersey, got a heartbreaking phone call. Three boys collecting bottles in the woods had made a gruesome discovery. What exactly did they see? They saw a woman's body naked lying on her back and it was pretty evident that she had been stabbed. What did the kids do after that? They waved down a car and somebody called the police. Randy Chucko was one of the first officers to respond. The young victim appeared posed and her clothes were folded neatly beneath her head. Investigators were certain she had been killed in the wooded ravine. We saw these very, very evident stab wounds. And at that point, we secured the scene and waited for a crime scene unit to come out. Was it clear to you that the attack was sexually motivated? Based on the fact that she was naked, the way her legs were posed, it did appear to us almost right away that this was sexually motivated. Officers searched the young woman's belongings, but found no identification. As detectives studied the evidence, they concluded that the victim had been brought to the location by force. Did it appear that the victim had any opportunity to fight for her life? Completely overpowered. I don't think she ever stood a chance. Investigators found a critical clue on the ground near the young woman's body. What evidence did you find at the crime scene? Leather knife sheath was found. Police were confident that the brand new sheath had been dropped by the killer, but the initial search for his knife came up empty. What did you think the chances were that you would ever find the murder weapon? We thought it was impossible. The pond was checked, the parking lot was checked, the wooded area was checked. The state police came in with a metal detector and nothing was found. In fact, detectives didn't find any other useful clues at the crime scene. And back in 1976, that meant that investigators had a long road ahead of them. There was no DNA, it was what we would call now old-fashioned police work. And it was obviously that she was assaulted, but beyond that, there was no evidence. 
The location of the crime, a wooded ravine behind a public pool, led detectives to theorize that the killer was most likely from the area. If somebody had been walking by, could they have seen the ravine from the road? You could see the path going down. You couldn't see the crime scene. Investigators canvassed the area, but found no eyewitnesses. We were kind of surprised that no one else had seen it. Detectives knew that the first step in solving the mystery was identifying the young victim. A check of missing persons reports in the area quickly led them to the name Kim Montalero. Not only was the 20-year-old's description a match to their victim, but her last known whereabouts were just five miles away from the crime scene. detectives reached out to Kim's family. That's when they notified my parents that they needed to go to the coroner's office to identify the body. The three of us, we, we hugged, we cried, and uh, mom and dad went off to do what they had to do. When his parents returned, they shared the devastating news with Paul. The young woman who had been found murdered was in fact his older sister, Kim. The tragedy robbed Paul of his best friend and mentor. Where was Kim in her life at that time? At that point in her life, Kim was in one of the happiest positions I've ever known her to be in. She had everything in the world going for her. Kim was on track to graduate from the University of Rhode Island a year early. She was planning to continue her education and become an attorney. But now, all of those dreams were shattered. How difficult was it? for you not only to deal with your own pain, but to see your parents suffer so deeply. Absolutely excruciating. In those first weeks and months, I mean, the grief, just so overwhelming. The three of us found strength in each other. I never would have made it without them. When one of the three of us were at our lowest point, the other two were there. That's how we survived. Investigators promised the Montalero family they would do whatever it took to bring Kim's killer to justice. This was only the second homicide you had ever investigated. How did you approach it? My wife was pregnant with my daughter, my first child, and you have a hard time separating the two. I lived in the town. You just realized that you had to do everything you could to make sure that we were going to find out who did that. And Officer Chucko never could have imagined how much deeper his personal connection to the case was about to become.
Police investigating the tragic death of Kim Montalero were trying to reconstruct the sequence of events that had led up to her murder. First, Kim's car had been found abandoned in the Paramus Park Mall parking lot with her shoes and keys inside. Then, her lifeless body was discovered in a heavily wooded ravine five miles away. Police wondered how those two clues fit together until one detective on the case suddenly realized that he held the missing piece of the puzzle. The afternoon before Kim Montalero's body had been found, Officer Randy Chucko had been doing his rounds in the area near the town's public pool when he noticed a car tucked away in the back of the parking lot. Why did the car catch your attention? I saw this green Oldsmobile Cutlass somewhere around 2.55 in the afternoon. It was a car parked in an odd spot. There were times when that uh, parking lot would be filled. It wasn't that day. This was the only car in that part of the parking lot. Officer Chucko's instincts told him that something didn't seem right. But as he was getting ready to investigate, a call came in on his police radio, ordering him to immediately respond to a robbery in progress. Back then, you did what you were told. You, you were sent on a call, you went. After he finished his work at the robbery scene, Officer Chucko decided to go back and check out the green car. But when he arrived at the parking lot an hour later, the vehicle was gone. Did that make you suspicious at all? It really didn't. It's hard to imagine how many suspicious cars police officers check out. Dozens and dozens every month. Even the next morning, when he was called to investigate a homicide just steps away, Officer Chucko still didn't make the connection. I still didn't put it all together that the finding of Kim's body had anything to do with that car. And then what happened? The description of the car she was in was broadcast. Did your heart sink when you got that description of her car? It did. It did. Suddenly, Officer Chucko realized that the green car he had seen was Kim's. Are you now convinced it was Kim's car that you had seen the afternoon before? Absolutely positive. All these years later, I see it. I see right where the car was. I remember it like it was yesterday. Officer Chaco still wonders what might have happened if he hadn't been called away. It was very hard for me for a long time, uh, knowing that I was right there. And um, it, it, it hurt a lot. Maybe something else could have been done. Still, Officer Chucko's report now became a critical clue in the case. He was certain that Kim's car had been in the parking lot at 2.55 p.m. and was gone just an hour later. Once you confirmed to your supervisors that you had in fact seen Kim's car, how did that advance the investigation? 
We had a very, very strict time period when we knew that the crime happened. For several days, police put up roadblocks near the crime scene, hoping to find a witness who had been in the area on the afternoon of the murder. We stopped every single car that went by, hoping that a motorist had seen something suspicious. Had any witnesses seen anything? No. Investigators had a solid theory of the sequence of events leading up to Kim's murder. They concluded that after she dropped her brother off around 2, Kim had visited the Paramus Mall. Then, at 2.55, her car was spotted five miles away in the pool parking lot. Was it your belief that she was forced to drive the car there from the mall by her attacker? We kind of suspected that right away. Did you find it almost impossible to conceive of the fact that given the timeline police came up with, that no one saw her abduction that afternoon. This was a busy place. It is a busy mall, and it was, it's considered one of the safer malls. We were all surprised that the crime had begun there. When the details of Kim's murder became front page news, residents in the area became terrified that a killer was prowling their streets. What impact did Kim's murder have on the community? If you knew New Milford back in the 70s, New Milford was a very tight-knit community. Everybody kind of knew each other, and people were frightened because the first thought was, could this be somebody that we know? Is it somebody living among us? But the publicity surrounding the crime did more than just spread fear it helped generate the next big break in the case. Police investigating Kim Montalero's murder had developed a solid theory of the crime. They were convinced that after the 20-year-old had been abducted from the Paramus Park Mall parking lot, she was forced to drive her own car to the Wooded Ravine, where she was later stabbed to death. Then, following the savage attack, Kim's killer inexplicably got back into her car and returned it to the mall where the sadistic crime had begun. But even after detectives had determined how the disturbing chain of events had unfolded, they still didn't have a single clue that would help them identify the man who killed Kim. Police knew that Kim's killer had been behind the wheel of her car following her murder. And they hoped that they would find fingerprints or blood that might help identify him. But an exhaustive search of the interior failed to reveal any new evidence. Instead, it was officers canvassing the Paramus Mall who came up with the big break in the case. We wound up finding three women that were able to give us a very distinct description 
of someone acting suspiciously. The women all said they had been frightened by a stranger lurking in the parking lot. What did they report having happened? One lady was accosted by a young man, uh, approached her as she was sitting in her car. He said, would you like to get together? And she felt very uncomfortable and drove off. One other woman drove off as soon as she saw this suspicious person walking over to her car. And a third woman saw a very suspicious young man hiding between cars. Each of the three witnesses gave the same description of the stalker. What did they say he looked like? Young, teenager, short, stocky. Investigators now theorize that Kim had been taken by surprise by her knife-wielding attacker as she placed her bags in the trunk of her car. Still, detectives only had a vague description of her attacker to go on. Desperate for a solid lead, they went back to the crime scene, hoping to find something they had missed. Of particular interest was the pond near the ravine. The pond had already been divided into sections, so you can search one section at a time. The whole pond had been checked. But as officers approached the small pond for a second time, the water had all but evaporated. It was a great big mud hole. As police surveyed the perimeter, they were stunned to see the blade of a knife sticking up into the air. Did you see the knife right yes. away? Blade up out of the muck. And we theorized that because the handle was heavier than the blade, that's what sunk into the mud. Could you believe what you were seeing? No. Looking at the pictures now, can barely believe it. Investigators believe they had just found the murder weapon in an area where dozens of officers had already spent hours looking for it. Can you describe that moment to me? I can't even describe it. You almost have to think that it was divine intervention. I don't know what else to say about it. The knife was taken to the lab for testing. The medical examiner determined it was consistent with the wounds Kim had suffered. And it was a perfect match to the empty sheath detectives had found at the crime scene. Were there any fingerprints found on the knife? No. By the time the knife was found, it had been underwater for at least a couple of days. Police were still hopeful that the large hunting knife might lead them to Kim's killer. What was so distinctive about the knife that led investigators to believe they might be able to track down where it was bought? It appeared that it was relatively new, and the sheath had also looked relatively new. We were really hopeful that a local store was going to be able to tell us who they sold it to. Detectives fanned out to all the sporting goods stores in the area, 
and their intensive effort paid off when they found a shop owner who said he remembered selling that type of knife to a teenager just a few weeks before. What was his description of the man? Young man, short, very, very stocky. The description appeared to be a match to the man who had been seen prowling around the mall parking lot. And the shop owner was able to give police additional details. The most distinctive part was he had what the store owner described as homemade tattoos that were pretty distinctive. And he came back and forth from the store on a moped. For the first time, investigators had enough information to issue an all-points bulletin on their suspect. The description was put out to neighboring police departments, and the police department in the neighboring community thought they had a match. Would it be the tip that led detectives to Kim Montalero's killer? trying to solve Kim Montalero's murder had just made a miraculous discovery while searching the crime scene for a second time. The water in a nearby pond had evaporated, revealing the murder weapon sticking up blade first out of the mud. Police then capitalized on the break by eventually finding a shop owner who remembered selling that same type of hunting knife to a teenager on a moped. Would that tip be the key to cracking the case? Investigators had put out a bulletin to law enforcement in the region asking for tips about a stocky teenager with homemade tattoos who drove a moped. And police in the neighboring town of Rivervale, New Jersey, immediately responded. Detective there said that description sounds like a young man that lives in our town. Christopher Rigetti. And when investigators reviewed Rigetti's police record, they became convinced they were on the right track. What did you learn about Rigetti's criminal history? He had already spent time in a juvenile facility for a sexual assault. Officer Chucko became even more certain when he learned the chilling statement that the 16-year-old Rigetti had made to his fellow inmates while behind bars. Rigetti said that the only mistake he made was leaving a witness. Rigetti served less than two years for his crime, and shortly after his release, he was back in trouble with the law. He had uh, threatened a woman with a knife but she didn't want to pursue criminal charges. He thought it better serve him if he got uh, psychiatric help, and that's how the case was adjudicated. Police believe they had enough to bring Rigetti in for questioning. But in the interrogation room, he denied knowing anything about Kim's murder. What did Rigetti tell police about the knife? He admitted buying it at the sporting goods store. So he actually admitted to buying that same type of knife and owning it? Yes, he did. What was his explanation? 
as to how that knife ended up in the pond. He said he had it taped to his moped and that he had lost it. In fact, Rigetti said he hadn't even seen the knife since the day he had bought it. What was Rigetti's alibi for the afternoon of the murder? He admitted to being in Paramus Park. He said he was on his moped and said that he was with his friends for the whole day. What happened when investigators talked with those friends who he claimed had been with him that afternoon? They did not confirm the alibi. So they said they weren't with him? Yes, correct. Police got additional details about Rigetti's movements that day from his girlfriend. What did she say about the day that Kim was murdered? She saw Rigetti in the mall and they spoke for a little while. And she remembered that he had a large hunting knife with him. She worked in a store that sold yarn and she needed to cut some yarn and she asked to borrow his knife. What Rigetti's girlfriend saw later that evening also seemed important. This girl saw Rigetti later and noticed that he had mud on his pants and questioned him about it, and he said that he was laying down in the grass somewhere. Detectives continued to build their case against Rigetti, placing him in a lineup for the women who had seen a teenager prowling the mall parking lot. Could they identify Rigetti as the man they had seen at the mall? Yes. Every witness picked Rigetti out of the lineup. Including the store owner who had sold Rigetti the knife. So what do you have at this point? We have him buying a knife that's very, very similar to the murder weapon. We have him in Paramus Park, where Kim was abducted, acting suspiciously while there. Rigetti also had no alibi for the time frame of the murder and police believed that the lies he had already told them only further pointed to his guilt. Was there any additional evidence you thought you needed to arrest him? Well, what we were really hoping for was that he would admit to it. Detectives brought Rigetti in for a second interview and confronted him with the solid circumstantial case they had compiled. What did Rigetti tell them about the day of Kim's murder? He was brought back to police headquarters and eventually he did admit to bringing Kim to where he committed the murder. He described it as consensual that they went together. She wanted to go. Officers were disgusted as they listened to the details of Rigetti's new story. And they were angered by his claim that it had been Kim who had pulled a knife on him. When you heard his story, did it make you sick? Blood boils. How on earth would you think anybody would believe this? She attacked him? Just total, total nonsense. He 
besmirches this lovely young lady, lying every step of the way. And investigators were convinced that a jury would agree when they charged Christopher Rigetti with first-degree murder. As the trial began in October of 1976, prosecutors painted a frightening portrait of Rigetti in the mall parking lot. He was there basically on the prowl. Before he approached Kim, he had tried to approach two other women. He was, in every sense of a word, a sexual predator, and a violent one at that. When Kim's brother Paul testified, it was the first time he was face-to-face -face with Rigetti. The whole time I sat there, I faced forward, I answered the questions of the prosecutor, and I refused. I would not make eye contact with that murderer. Next, detectives laid out their theory of how the crime unfolded. What do you think really happened that afternoon? He was looking for a victim in Paramus Park. We don't know exactly what happened with him getting into Kim's car. But we're sure that he forced her to drive to where they did. assault was brutal. When it was done, got back in the car, drove back to Paramus Park where he left her car, drove his moped home, and went about his life. I'm not even sure it bothered him. Rigetti took the stand in his own defense, but the prosecution used cold, hard facts to contradict his lies. Everything he said was completely contradicted. Testimony at trial from the medical examiner was that the rape was forcible. There was medical evidence of that. Christopher Rigetti was found guilty of first-degree murder sentenced to life in prison. What did the guilty verdict mean to your family? I believe it was most important to my father that this person who raped and murdered Kim did go to court, was found guilty, and was going away to jail where he belongs. I am certainly glad that we have this heinous criminal locked up But the Montalero family has been unable to put the case behind them. Since 2009, they've had to face the threat that Christopher Rigetti will be released from prison, a possibility that has left the community outraged. I can't even imagine him being released. He's never shown remorse for what he's done. I have no doubt in my mind that if he is released, he will harm someone again. I think he is one of those people that is hardwired to inflict pain on other people. Officer Randy Chucko, who later spent many years as the chief of police in the township of Washington, 
continues to make his presence felt at each of Rigetti's parole hearings. For him, it's a way to honor Kim's memory and that fateful afternoon when he saw her empty car in the pool parking lot. I know it's been painful for you to look back at this case. For someone now who's been in law enforcement over 40 years, do you think you'll ever be able to let go of this case? No. No, I won't. I used to think about it every day. And I think of it quite often, even now. But no, I'm, I'll never, I'll never completely forget about it. Never. Before his death in 2015, Tony Montalero begged his wife and son Paul to not let Kim's tragic death consume their lives as well. He said, if you let that happen to you, he'll wind up taking four lives instead of the one he already took. It always stuck with me. Why give him the satisfaction of taking four lives? No. Today, Paul Montalero focuses his energy on moving forward without leaving the memory of his beautiful sister behind. Why were you willing to talk with us about what happened to Kim? I'm gonna paraphrase from a movie that I like. I love Kim Montalero, and I want you to love her too. We know the tragedy of what happened to her, but I want your audience to remember how she lived. And I do want her murderer to stay in jail forever. I think that's extremely important. I have my great love for Kim and, and to keep an evil, evil criminal in jail. That's why I do this. New Jersey law mandates that Christopher Rigetti receive a new parole hearing every three years. Kim's family and law enforcement have vowed to fight against his release every time. For more information about their effort, please visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Paula Zahn official. I'm Paula Zahn. Please join us again next time when we're back on the case.